House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and I'm Al Warren. Now, today we are bringing in a sci-fi writer. Um, he's got a book out that he's uh, talking about, The Oppenheimer Alternative. And our guest is Robert J. Sawyer. Thank you for being here. Alan, it's my absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's, it's, it's my pleasure. I think it's a fascinating uh, subject. Um, now, before we get too detailed in the book, I wonder um, what got you into this world of sci-fi writing? So it's funny, On the this isn't the day we're broadcasting, but the day we're recording happens to be March 9th, 2022. That is the 55th anniversary of the first airing of the first Star Trek episode that I ever saw, which was The Devil in the Dark. Fans of Star Trek, the original series, will remember it as the one with the Horda, the silicon-based life form. I was not allowed to watch violent, quote-unquote, violent TV. My parents were typical 1960s liberal university uh, professors, and uh, I wasn't allowed to watch that show. But my older brother, who was 12 at the time, was. I snuck down. It was a Thursday night, 1967, uh, March 9th, where The Devil in the Dark aired, and I was hooked for life. There was this alien creature, not just Spock, the Vulcan, who was an alien, but this completely non-humanoid creature, the Horda. There was the telepathic mind meld between Spock and the alien. There was the faster-than-light spaceship, interplanetary travel. Everything was there. But also a message, a message of peace and tolerance and brother and sisterhood and setting aside prejudice and that it was cool to be a pacifist. All of that engage me at the age of six and I've never given up since 55 years on I'm still the world's biggest science fiction nerd well that's interesting what do you think it is that um hooks people into science fiction like that is it is it the uh the unknown is it the imagination of what is created when you're writing or developing a show uh, what is it well, first, I absolutely have to give great credit because there was enormous imagination uh, in that went into the original Star Trek. Gene Roddenberry had the brilliance to hire real science fiction writers, people who are well known for writing science fiction books and short stories, uh, people like everybody famously knows Harlan Ellison, who wrote The City on the Edge of Forever, but Robert Block, who also wrote Psycho, which I'm sure the House of Mystery listeners know very well, uh, wrote three episodes of the original Star Trek series. Theodore Sturgeon, one of the great all-time SF novelists, wrote two episodes, and so forth. So the depth of imagination in good science fiction. Remember, Star Trek's competition at this time slot, or at this time uh, in, in the 60s, was lost in space, which was a dire, horrible, uh, ill-conceived show. You know, you cannot, you can't watch it as an adult. Uh, it was on the same time, uh, again, in 66, uh, Lost in Space actually premiered in 65, Star Trek in 66, also premiering in 66, the original Batman, the campy version. You can watch that camp version as an adult of Batman. You can't watch Lost in Space as an adult without just feeling that your intelligence is insulted. Why do you think they did something like Lost in Space? Do they think their audience wasn't um, equipped to handle too real of science fiction? 
You know, it's interesting because the first few episodes of Lost in Space were played seriously. And Lost in Space premiered, uh, you know, in 65, and its first season even wasn't too bad. It really went off the rails, jumped the shark, to use a term we didn't have in the 60s. We didn't get that until the Happy Days episode where Fonzie literally jumped a shark. Uh, But... uh, I think a large part of it going camp and over the top was the Batman series. People saw that that was, it may or may not be fondly remembered by comic book fans today. I certainly remember it very fondly, but it was the biggest show to hit the airwaves in 1966. And suddenly all kinds of things were going more camp. A man from uncle went more camp once uh, Batman became a hit as well. So I think they made the mistaken belief that camp doesn't have to make sense. Batman at least made sense in its own, you know, twisted, perverted, supervillain logic. It made a certain amount of sense. Uh, Irwin Allen didn't understand that um, when he made Lost in Space, unfortunately. No, no. It's strange how that is. Uh, even the horror, like Adam's Family and, and Monsters right. and stuff, was all kind of campy or funny. Trying We to didn't get continuing character horror, really, in, in prime time. We had Dark Shadows earlier on, but we didn't until we got, you know, um, uh, the Night Stalker TV series. Um, and based on, by the way, uh, a screenplay, the, the first pilot, the screenplay by Richard Matheson, who was also one of those great classic science fiction and horror writers that Gene Roddenberry hired to write for Star Trek. Uh, Matheson, of course, is best known for having written um, I Am Legend, which became three movies now, my favorite version being the Charlton Heston version, uh, The Omega Man. So this all leads to um, your writing. Um but you know, I, I sort of still wonder when when you um, got the um, initial bug to kind of go, well, I can do this. You know, and that's interesting because of all the negative things I've said about Lost in Space. As far as uh, uh, the McMaster University, I live in Toronto. It's a Canadian university. McMaster wanted my archives, so I had to go through all my papers to donate them to the university, and I got a nice tax credit, so it was you know, well worth doing. The oldest story of mine that we could find was a story that I had written in pencil in 1966, 67. It's not dated. That was a lost in space. We didn't have the term fanfic back then, fan fiction. But it was a lost in space fanfic. So something made me think, uh, all due credit to or respect to Irwin Allen, may he rest in peace, a kid could write better stuff than what he was putting on the air. And that really was my start, was writing uh, first that. And then I wrote some Star Trek stuff and so forth. Uh, really thinking, you know, I could try my hand at this. And I didn't think I could do better than the original Star Trek as a kid, but I sure as heck thought I could do better than the original Lost in Space. Uh, you know, I find this, a, this um, another thing about science fiction lately and writers. Now, you're classified under this as alternative history science fiction or perhaps hard, hard science fiction. Now, I, I'm probably around the same age as you, and I... Uh, you know, of course, when I was growing up, I was thinking uh, science fiction was science fiction. You know, the time machine, Star Trek, right. Lost in Space, it was all just sci-fi. I didn't have any of these terms. 
what what particularly is different about hard, hard science fiction or alternative science fiction? Sure. Uh, first, only of my Oppenheimer alternative, the book you mentioned very kindly in the introduction, my 24th novel, it's the only one that's an alternate history novel. So let's set that term aside for a minute and talk about hard science fiction. Uh, hard science fiction is simply science fiction that takes its science seriously. So... Uh, when I have science in my science fiction, and I always do, uh, it's either real physics, chemistry, astronomy, sociology, economics. My dad was a, uh, a professional economist, uh, and there's that famous saying that economics is the dismal science. So I like to say, introduce people to my dad and say, oh, uh, please meet my father, Jack. He's a dismal scientist. But... Um, the hard sciences, anything that I have in it, it doesn't mean just physics and chemistry and engineering. It means that the science is rigorous when it's true and plausible when it's extrapolated into the future. So Star Wars, for all of its many virtues as entertainment, is not hard science fiction. And in fact, George Lucas, you know, uh, went and thumbed his nose uh, when he, uh, you know, in, in um, A New Hope episode four, what we only knew as Star Wars when it first came out in 77, when he had, uh, you know, Han Solo use Parsec as a unit of time instead of a unit of distance. Uh, uh, Lucas was, I think, very deliberately saying, this isn't for the math and engineering nerds at MIT. This is for people who grew up like Lucas did with the Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon Saturday morning serials where science was thrown out the window uh, in favor of just mindless uh, but pulse-pounding action-adventure. So what is the, um, how do I put this, what, what is the draw to it? Like if, if, you, if you were doing something like Star Wars and it's not for the science majors, let's say, and it's for entertainment, um, does it really matter or is it, is it really important to make sure that your science is exact? Sure. To me, it, it, it works like this. Uh, right now, of course, uh, Joe Biden is president of the United States. There's going to be another election in a few years where people will be running against them. Quite possibly, it's going to be Donald Trump running against them. So if somebody says to you, you know, I think after the, the next election, uh, Joe Biden will be president. You go, yeah, okay, I got to listen to that. Tell me why you think so. So, so. I think, no, no, I think it's going to be Trump again. Oh, well, I'm not keen on that, but tell me your logic behind that. Some third guy says, you know what, I think it's going to be William Shatner. You go, what? First, he's not American, so he can't possibly. He's a Canadian. <laughs> Second, the guy is 90-something, right? He's not going to run for president. That's pure fantasy, and you tune that person out. You don't listen to that speculation because it's not grounded in anything like reality. Well, when we're writing science fiction, we want not just to entertain, but we absolutely do, without question. That's the sine qua non, the without which nothing of uh, any kind of writing is you've got to entertain the reader, hold their attention, make them want to keep turning the pages. But I also want to speculate about what our future might plausibly be like for two reasons. One is, of course, as much science fiction does to provide a warning and say, you know, if we don't do a course correction, climate change or nuclear war or an artificial intelligence uprising or you name it is going to be the downfall of humanity. So here's the warning bells. Or 
and this is my uh, sort of mode because I'm a very optimistic person and an optimistic writer, here's a roadmap to where we can get our way out of the problems we have now into a better future. One of the many reasons I was drawn to Star Trek is because Gene Roddenberry wanted to portray not just a better future, but a better kind of people that humans would get over a lot of their pettiness and become, you know, nicer, better, well, more well-rounded people, good people to be around. So if I want people to take what I have to say about the future seriously, I have to give them options that sound plausible. And there, that plausibility comes from grounding it in real, actual science. Yeah, that's interesting. I, um, is it important to you that you have a, a subtext of some sort like that, then something that you're trying to get across to people in your stories? It like, is to be me. good. Yeah, it is to me, Al. It's not for everybody who writes science fiction, but it is to me. They're basically... To the, the mother of science fiction, the one who created it all, is Mary Shelley with Frankenstein. Stop and think about it. Besides being a horror novel, it's a novel about a scientist who's conducting an experiment based on a theory, which is that electricity can reanimate dead matter. It's a scientific premise. The main character, Victor, is doctor. He's a doctor, Victor Frankenstein. He's a scientist. It's the first science fiction novel. But Mary Shelley, our grandmother, had two spiritual children, Jules Verne, who really only wanted to entertain. He was, if he has a contemporary uh, offspring, it's Tom Clancy. Tom Clancy writes techno thrillers, gets all of the fascinating little details right, but he's really not trying to say anything. But then there was also H.G. Wells. And H.G. Wells, uh, his most famous works, the two most famous everybody knows, if they haven't read them, if they've at least seen a movie version or a comic book adaptation, The War of the Worlds, and the time machine. Well, Wells wasn't interested in the War of the Worlds about the idea that Martians might invade Earth. He wanted to say something to his contemporaries. That novel came out in the late 18, in 1902 for War of the Worlds, excuse me. To his contemporaries, he wanted to say, look, you know, what we're doing, he was British, what we're doing, Britain, with our colonialism, is trampling underfoot native cultures that really wish we weren't there, whether it's India or my country of Canada, which, uh, you know, had only just gained its independence really by that point. Uh, he was making a metaphoric, a disguised statement because he knew if he wrote a book that decried British colonialism, nobody was going to read it. Or those who did, the few who might, uh, would be those who already agreed with them. Same thing, I won't go into the same elaborate explanation, but just say the time machine is not about time travel to the year 802-701 AD. It's about the British class system and why that class system is bad for the leisure class in addition to being bad for the working class. Everybody knew it was bad for you know the poor, downtrodden working class, the Bob Cratchits of the world. Uh, what they didn't know, and uh, Wells wanted to say metaphorically, was that it's also bad for the Ebenezer Scrooges of the world, the moneyed leisure class, the, work, the, the people who were in power were being destroyed by class disparity as well. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you have to wonder, but in, in those times, how many people do you think actually understood the, the subtext or understood what it was and just, just didn't follow along the, 
the, the, the fun of the adventure, I guess. I think this happens, you know, certainly when I first encountered them, I did not get the subtext, as the English literature majors would call it, right? Um, I think as you come back to these works as an older reader, a more sophisticated reader, you discover quite clearly what Wells was talking about. You know, one of my favorite movies is The Maltese Falcon. And when Casper Gutman, the fat man, is explaining the history of the Falcon to uh, Sam Spade, the Humphrey Bogart character, he says, this is history, Mr. Uh, Mr. Spade. Not Mr. Wells's history, but history nonetheless. Well, Wells was known in his day, not as a writer of science fiction. That's what we remember him for now. He made his living as a popular historian as a writer uh, of books like, uh, you know, uh, uh, the uh, Civil War by Shelby Foote, that kind of stature uh, of being a popular, well-known historian. And um, that's what Gutman is referring to, is that Wells was known, these were Wells's, you know, lightweight tales, people thought, but nobody reads Wells's history books anymore. And everybody <laughs> who reads science fiction reads or at least knows of H.G. Wells. Mm, strange, eh? How things mm. go. Uh, uh, now, of course, your your newest book, I believe this is your newest book, came out June of, of 20, uh, the Oppenheimer. In the heat of the pandemic, yes, it is, yeah. which is why I'm still flogging at, at this late date, the Oppenheimer alternative. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, so I understand this now. So you've taken um, a historical time and events, and you've, put it into a science fiction story. So it's kind of like an historical fiction in a way. Yes. But historical science fiction, I guess we, we would go. And you call it, or it's called in uh, online as alternative. So what, first of all, made you choose this particular incident? We're talking about, of course, um, you know, the Manhattan Project and, and the, the nuclear or the A-bomb, I guess we're going to say. Um, what made you choose this? That's right. J. Robert Oppenheimer was the scientific director of the Manhattan Project and based at the Los Alamos Laboratory, where indeed the first atomic bomb was developed in 1945. And, you know, I'm going to sound again like the ultimate science fiction nerd, because in the 70s, I was a huge fan of The Six Million Dollar Man. And there was an episode of The Six Million Dollar Man called The Last Kamikaze. It was written by a writer named Judy Burns. And in it, Steve Austin, astronaut, this man with bionic parts, uh, goes on the hunt for a uh, Japanese soldier in the Philippines who is unaware that World War II is over. He's a kamikaze pilot who thinks the war is still on. And his, uh, uh, Austin confronts him and says to him, the war is over. He's just, the Japanese guy, uh, wonderfully played uh, by John uh, Fujikawa, the actor, uh, says, no, Japan fight for a thousand years. The war would never be over We until we were triumphant. He said, no, it ended because my people, the Americans, the United States, we dropped a two bombs on Japanese cities of a super powerful type that never before existed. And then he said something I had never heard anybody said. A lot of us wish it had never happened. Now, this is Steve Austin, astronaut hero of this show, <laughs> saying in the 1970s, a lot of us wish we had never dropped the bomb on Japan. And I'd only ever heard the positive that it ended World War II. I'd never heard about the regret. And I thought, 
and this has stuck with me. This has stuck with me for decades. And I thought, you know, the man who must have had the most regret, if he had any conscience at all, would have been J. Robert Oppenheimer. And I just got obsessed with reading about him. Now, as uh, I'm sure your listeners may have noticed, uh, the next Christopher Nolan film is entitled Oppenheimer and will be a biopic about J. Robert Oppenheimer. And I know Nolan must know this, because if you read Oppenheimer's life story, there are significant gaps in it that just begged for somebody to fill them in in fiction. And that's what drew me to writing the Oppenheimer alternative. So the research that in, must be involved in this, because like you said, you've read a, read a lot about him, but also the other members and also about the Manhattan Project. And, and you've got, uh, of course, Vaughn Braun and you've got other people in here. Albert um, Einstein, for instance. Yeah. 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 So what's what's that entail? Like, how long does it take you to do this? Well, first, I've got to say, as a writer in science fiction, it's a field that's not necessarily well regarded for characterization. But one of the hallmarks of my work is very human, very well-drawn-out characters, well-defined characters in my work. So I get praised for that all the time, and it means a great deal to me. But this book has a cast that I could not have made up, that was handed to me on a silver platter. I'm astonished that more people haven't written fiction about these characters. Because J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb, Edward Teller, the father of the hydrogen bomb, and considered by many to be the principal model Stanley Kubrick used for the character of Dr. Strangelove. You know, uh, Albert Einstein and uh, many other famous scientists, uh, Enrico uh, Enrico Fermi, Hans Bethe, and so forth, are the characters larger than life, like Wile E. Coyote, every one of them a super genius that I was... able to write about. Now, if I'm going to write about them, uh, there are people, they're all dead. So I have no, uh, there's no, you can't libel the dead. You can write whatever you want about a dead person, and there's simply no recourse, except for people, you know, giving you bad reviews if they want to. Uh, But there are people alive still who very much uh, knew these people. One of my good friends, Gregory Benford, another fine science fiction writer, was Edward Teller's graduate student when Benford was studying physics. So I knew that, and, and Opera Oppenheimer's daughter sadly committed suicide, but his son is still alive, Peter Oppenheimer. And I felt a moral obligation to make sure that, although I was going to paint all these characters warts and all, you know, not soft pedal any of their foibles, but that people who knew them in life, who are still alive, would say, yeah, you nailed them. And uh, so far, that's been the feedback that I did indeed get them. Well, that took well over a year of full-time research, doing nothing but research for this book uh, before I wrote the first word, to know these people well enough to bring them convincingly to the page. You know, it's interesting because when you spend a year or so full-time researching these individuals um, and finding out a lot of details about them, um, wouldn't you possibly find out things that you that you totally didn't expect or there's things that surprised you? And, and when that happens, does that actually change some of the story? Oh, yes. You know, uh, Oppenheimer is mostly a tragic figure. I mean, uh, he saved the world in a way he brought an end to the second world war and then he was uh, vilified by the united states because he had had communist sympathies 
and in fact lost his security clearance and was humiliated uh, after the war. Um, and uh, so, you know, he's a tragic figure, but I found also there were some enormously unlikable things that the guy did that I worked their way into my book. He had, I mentioned his daughter who committed suicide eventually. When his daughter was born, this, his daughter was born while they were on the base camp at Los Alamos Laboratory during World War II. And he went to a neighbor and said to her, would you like to adopt her? And she said, what? She's got two perfectly good parents, you and Kitty, the name of Oppenheimer. <laughs> no, I, I cannot love her, he said. And he tried to give away his child. Well, no wonder she ended up having a horrible life. And eventually, as I say, as an adult, did take her life. Uh, and in fact, the fallout, it's a tragic story. You know, I mentioned that Oppenheimer lost his security clearance because of his communist sympathies. Well, his daughter, like her father, was a polyglot, spoke many languages, and she wanted to be a translator for the United Nations. Well, they would not give her security clearance, which you need to be in the Security Council and so forth, the uh, uh, General yeah. Assembly and so forth, to be a trans. She couldn't get it because of her father's security history. And ultimately, she killed herself. So this kind of stuff, which is not, you know, the... Uh, bullet point details you find in a short biography of Oppenheimer enormously colors the character and makes them just that much more tragically human to write about. Do you find that when you're writing about real characters like this, um, are they the same type of writing as if when you're writing totally fictional characters? And I mean this in that um, there's a lot of fiction writers I've talked to and they create um, their characters from different means, and they have different ways of, of, let's say, seeing their characters. Some do it with visual, and some can do it, they can hear their characters. Like, I hear all these sort of comments. But when you're taking someone that was actually alive, a real person, and you're, you're right. We at Wondery, creators of Dr. Death, Scamfluencers, and Over My Dead Body, go deeper into complex true crime stories to give you an inside look at the facts. And now we're launching the ultimate true crime fan destination, Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Wondery's Exhibit C gives you the detective's lens of all of the evidence, taking you step-by-step step through the twists and turns of each true crime case. Join the Exhibit C online community to access exclusive show merchandise, member-only content, and to hear directly from top criminal and social justice experts, witnesses, and investigators as they take us beyond the evidence and into the case file. Join now by following Wondery Exhibit C on Facebook or find us on the web at WonderyExhibitC.com and listen to true crime podcasts on Wondery and Amazon Music. Exhibit C. It's truly criminal. Reading about that person, is it the same type of writing? It's very different. That's a very perceptive question, Alex. It's very different because I don't have that latitude to say, you know, I wrote a novel uh, uh, 22 years ago, came out, Calculating God, one of my most popular novels. And I was about a third of a way into it. And I said to myself, you know, this is all kind of dry and academic. My character is debating uh, whether or not, uh, you know, the universe had a creator with an alien being. And it's interesting philosophically, but there's no emotional stake. And I thought, gee, you know, wouldn't it be 
interesting if my main human character uh, had terminal lung cancer and was on the verge of having to, if there is one, meet his maker. Wouldn't that work so much better? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you go back and you revise the beginning and it becomes a very powerful story. Well, ironically, Oppenheimer smoked himself to death, but I didn't have the option of putting in or taking out that detail of his life or really any of the signature details of his life. I could make up little bits of business as long as they didn't contradict the known biographies of Oppenheimer. There are excellent, excellent biographies written of him. He never wrote an autobiography, unlike a number of the other characters I have in the book, but he was his life was definitely well documented. And that was really a constraint. Now, was it a frustrating constraint? Yes, very often. I would say, oh, it would be so much easier if Offie really hadn't done that stupid thing that he really did in real life because it's, it's bogging down my plot. But I had to go with what the historical record was. But do I like being challenged like that? Very much so. You know, it was my 24th novel, Alan. I, I, there's no reason I, I'm a reasonably well-to-do writer. There's no reason for me to sit down and write another book unless it challenges me in some way. And this was a really exciting challenge to undertake. So in a way, you're kind of getting something out of writing a book, at, or probably each book. Um, every time you do it, you kind of learn something about your own writing your own self absolutely um, absolutely but, so what do you think was the most important thing that you got out of writing this book out of this particular book yeah uh, it really was a, a sense of how conflicted so many people were about uh the dawn of the nuclear era and of course we're you know right now russia has invaded ukraine uh Putin is uh, saber-rattling about possibly uh, ramping up to a nuclear conflict. We're very much still, this is uh, 76 years after the birth of the atomic age, uh, we're still living in a fear of the things that came out of that. And to really get my head wrapped around how very conflicted Oppenheimer and uh, and others involved in this project were at the time really bring you know to make another science fiction nerd reference it wasn't a case of uh, in Jurassic Park when the Jeff Goldblum character says you scientists were so busy trying to figure out whether you could you didn't stop to think about whether you should do something these guys were thinking about that all the time. And I think it behooves us to remember that science is as much about human conscience, about trying to do the right thing, as it is about what, seeing whether or not you can accomplish something. And Werner von Braun, how did you characterize someone like that? Now, he's a very interesting character because except for the fact that the United States wanted him, and I must say, uh, everybody wanted him after World War II. The Russians wanted him, everybody, because he was the developer of the V-2 rocket program. Uh, he was the father of uh, intercontinental ballistic missile rocketry, of, of all the stuff that we have today. And after World War II, the United States basically said, forget about putting this guy on trial at Nuremberg. We want him. We, and he ended up being the head of the development effort for the Saturn V, which was the giant rocket that took human beings to the moon. 
1969 through 1972, the Apollo program. We decided that he had so much expertise. We, the West, the Allies, decided that he had so much expertise, we would forgive the fact that his V2 manufacturing facility was a slave labor camp that he was well aware of, that he was a member of the Nazi party. Uh, we just forgave all that. And he was definitely, you know, Hannah Arendt famously talked about the banality of evil. All these Nazi men, and they were mostly men, who simply did their jobs without thinking about the political ramifications, turned a blind eye because they just wanted to do what they wanted to do. And Von Braun was very much, he wanted to do rocketry. He would have done it for peace, but he was happy to do it for war. He just wanted to do rocketry. And if there was horrific stuff going on around him, and he had to pledge allegiance to a horrible madman to do so, he made his peace with that. So he was a, you know, the closest thing to an evil character uh, in this story of uh, the development of World War II and, and uh, rocketry and advanced science that came out of World War II. It must be really hard. Now, I'm guessing, but for someone like you that's a real science nerd, as you call it, mm -hmm. um, to to deal with a lot of the kind of anti-science emotions, I call it, uh, going on around the world and, you know, the fake moon landing and the and flat earth and all of this stuff that, has caught on um does that sort of bother you any or does it interfere interfere with your writing it bothers me enormously it is you know if you want to lump under one heading the existential crisis that faces the human race it's science denialism whether it's over climate change climate change whether it's over what measures can control uh, coronaviruses uh whether it's over anything the fact that we reject now uh, reason, science, experimentation, falsifiability, the fact that you can demonstrably prove that the world is not flat and still have people reject that, that proof that it's not flat. It's an easy thing. Anybody can prove it. Just, you know, uh, watch a boat come over the horizon. You'll see the mast come over before you see the rest of the boat because it's coming over a curved surface. It's not a hard thing to prove that the world is round. <laughs> Um, and we've known that, you know, it's not even that, you know, people say flippantly Columbus discovered it. No, uh, ancient, ancient peoples knew that the world was round. We've known it for thousands of years because they were boating cultures. They saw that the surface of the earth was curved. So it absolutely infuriates me. And, uh, you know, uh, Carl Sagan famously said that science was a candle in the darkness. Well, science fiction is the fiction, the literature of that candle in the darkness. Well, so where do you draw the line, like as in um, what's going to be fiction and what's going to be nonfiction in a book like this? Where, what, what's your, your threshold? I wanted to set a very difficult challenge for me. I don't know if it mattered to my readers, but it mattered to me that nothing in the Oppenheimer alternative contradict any of the known historical record. And now this is 1930s through 1945 that I'm talking about. So there were sound recordings and black and white film recordings and so forth, films made and uh, lots of historic, thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of historical documents, most of which finally after 75 years have been declassified now, but some are still classified. Everything that was available to the public, including the recently class declassified stuff, I wanted to make sure 
I didn't contradict. But fortunately, there were gaps in the record. You know, I mentioned that Oppenheimer had been uh, pilloried for his communist associations. There's no proof that he was ever a member of the Communist Party himself. But his wife, Kitty, certainly had been, and uh, uh, his brother, Frank, had been, and so forth. And he was definitely a fellow traveler, one who shared sympathy with a lot of the uh, goals, the egalitarian goals of communism, if not the economic, uh, you know, or the, the what became oppressive things that came out of communism. Um, but he said at his security trial to a reporter, he said, pointing at the reporter, if a reporter were to dig deeply enough, he, it was a he back then, of course, he would discover that there's a much deeper story here than just my security clearance. Well, nobody ever found out what Oppenheimer was referring to. But to corroborate that, his second-in-command was a fellow named Deke Parsons at, at Los Alamos. And when Oppie's security hearing started, by that point, Eisenhower was president of the United States, and Deke said, I've got to talk to Ike, meaning Eisenhower, this, meeting the security hearing, is the worst mistake the United States could ever make because something's going to come out during this hearing, right? Unfortunately, Parsons had a heart attack the very next day and never spoke to Eisenhower, and the security hearing went ahead. And We never found out what it was that Oppie thought was the deeper story, but that was catnip to me as a writer. I had to uh, write that story to find out, to make up a story that didn't contradict what we knew, but filled in that fascinating, tantalizing thing that Oppenheimer had dangled in front of the real world all those years ago. Yeah, certainly a curious. Um, how many fictional characters would you put in or did you put in this story? Zero. For this Zero. one, again, to set my bar high for me, I made a, a decision that nobody in the book was going to be fictional. Not only that, but nobody in the book was going to be not famous. There's kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card when you're writing historical fiction. You pick a character that was real, sure. You know, you can find a record of him in the census uh, or a couple of uh, passing uh, references to him in historical works or her, but you get to basically make up the character. Uh, Michael Crichton infuriated me years ago because posthumously he had a novel published called Dragon's Teeth, which was about, uh, putatively, about Cope and Marsh, two feuding real-life paleontologists who fought the, quote-unquote, bone wars in the American Old West uh, over who could find and bring back to their respective museums uh, the most impressive dinosaur fossils. Uh, and it's a wonderful, rollicking, real-life part of paleontological history that I'm enamored with. And I always wanted to write a book about it, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. Well, Crichton did. And what does he do? He puts Cope in the opening chapter, Marsh in the closing chapter, and has all the chapters in between about a very minor historical character that he had carte blanche to write whatever way he wished. He took the easy way out. And I said to myself, no way when I do a historical novel am I going to do that. Every one of my characters is real, is famous, has a Wikipedia entry, has almost every one of them has multiple published biographies about them, so that people could call me on my BS if I had any BS about these characters. 
I didn't want Crichton's get out of jail free card. I wanted this to be the toughest writing assignment for me that I could make it so that I would be, you know, excited and challenged to get down to the keyboard every day. Yeah, yeah, I wonder, how do you handle the personalities, the characterizations of people in the sense of how they would, you're putting these characters together, but how would you have them interact with each other? Because without them being alive and without people in the room witnessing it sort of thing, um, wouldn't it be much harder to, to kind of figure out how they would actually be around each other in a private room? Right. It is. It is. And it's the fun of it. So I have a scene that I'm quite happy with where J. Robert Oppenheimer and um, a man named I.I., the initials I.I. Robbie, who went on to be a Nobel laureate, uh, and uh, are having a meeting at Robbie's home. And Albert Einstein shows up. And it's Christmas Eve. And Einstein uh, walks in the front door. Now, these are three Jewish gentlemen, so none of them are actually celebrating Christmas, right? <laughs> but Einstein walks in, and he, I, I want to have him say something that would be Einsteinian, but nobody's ever recorded Einstein as actually saying on Christmas Eve. So I have him say, hydroxyl, hydroxyl, hydroxyl. Well, physicists and chemists know that the chemical formula for hydroxyl is HO. So he's just come in and said, ho, 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 on Christmas Eve. Now, that strikes me as typically puckish Einsteinian wit, but he never spent Christmas Eve in real life as far as we know. We don't know that he did not, but we, he never spent Christmas Eve in real life with two other geniuses who would appreciate that joke. So writing that joke for me was, yeah, that's what my contribution was to make up stuff that these characters might have realistically said to each other had they been in the room together, and in that particular instance, hopefully get a, a laugh out of my readers. So um, I guess um, the book premise is uh, you're not, you can't really tell us how it's going to end. <laughs> oh, I don't want to. I could. I do know. I have read the damn thing. <laughs> you, you've read it. Eh? Well, actually, you know, so that, that leads me to the question of, when you're writing something like this, okay, so you've got the idea, this is where you want to go, the characters you've got. Um, do you outline to the point of you know how it's going to end in your mind? This is how it's going to end, and then work your way through the details to the end, or does it just happen? So my advice to beginning writers is do all the outlining you can because it'll save you a lot of grief later. That said, like so much advice that we give others, I don't take it myself. I had no idea how I was going to end the Oppenheimer alternative when I started the first draft. Now, that's why there had to be many subsequent drafts of the book, because when I finally, having lived with these characters as I wrote the book and stumbled through the things I wanted to do with the story, finally realized what I think was the perfect ending for the book, I had to go back and start again on a rewrite on page one to make it seem uh, in retrospect for anybody who closes the last page of the book, ah, of course, that's how it had to end, right? Without them, as they go along page by page, being able to guess how it's going to end. You don't want to telegraph it. You don't want it to be a giveaway. You don't, ah, oh, I saw it coming all along. But in the end, you want them to be satisfied and say, oh, of course, of course, that makes sense, right? So it was an enormous amount of, flailing in the dark to get to where I wanted to be. 
with uh, feedback along the way from, I call them my beta readers, after beta testers and software, people who, uh, you know, will look at something before it's ready to go to the public and give you their feedback. And with very good feedback from my beta readers, uh, I found my way uh, to the ending uh, that uh, the book deserved. In fact, one of those beta readers, Alicia Soule, the book is dedicated to her because she had such a wonderful insight about where I should take the plot that really did help me find that ending. So then without giving away that ending, um, someone goes out and they pick up this book, they read it, put it down. What is it that you want them to take away from the book? I want them to. It's interesting because it. I mentioned H.G. Wells. What is this about if it's not about the atomic age? It's about the fact that we're facing an existential crisis now. I do believe uh, in uh, concordance with almost every scientist on the planet, that climate change is a huge existential crisis. And the need to grapple with it is, as Oppenheimer realized in with the atomic bomb, the moment you've developed it is when you immediately start talking about uh, arms control. And Oppenheimer became a great advocate of arms control as uh, uh, almost immediately after the end of World War II. Uh, and the immediacy of as soon as you realize that you've got a problem, dealing with it, that you can't just keep putting it off. Uh, and in Oppie's personal life, when he did put off problems, uh, they festered and ultimately, you know, left to his, his daughter's suicide. Um, I want people to say, yeah, this is a call for action. When we're faced with a problem, don't put off coming up with controls and solutions. Dig in and do it now. In an entertaining package, in an entertaining, <laughs> pulse-pounding, emotionally heart-wrenching, you know, as they say, a staggering work of uh, intellectual literary genius, but <laughs> with lots of fun and jokes and puns uh, to get us along the way. But at the end, to have people not just say, oh, good read, wonder what's on TV, have them say, oh, what should I be doing tomorrow to hopefully make the world a little bit better? Well, hopefully they get it. <laughs> I hope so. I hope I, so. Yeah, hopefully they get it. Hopefully, uh, you know, you and we, and absolutely, we writers, Al, we have grandiose, grandiose, we can't even pronounce grandiose. That's how grandiose, grandiose aspirations, right? But really, as my friend uh, Spider Robinson, another science fiction writer, says, you know, what we're asking people for is their beer money. We're asking them for their disposable entertainment income money. And what we owe them is that they had a good time, that buying our book instead of buying whatever quantity of beer cans you could buy uh, for the, uh, the cost of the book, uh, that it was a fair trade for the consumer. And really, in the end, if my consumer, meaning the reader, just felt that they got their money's worth, that they enjoyed themselves, had a good time, uh, that the book was worthwhile to read, uh, then I'm, I'm more than content. Now, speaking of that, how do you uh, like to interact with readers, or do you? Do you do social do. media? Do you have a website? Let's give that all out. No, it's funny because, you know, I was the first science fiction writer in the world to have a website. It's sfwriter.com, S is in science, F is in fiction. You don't score a, an address like that if you're not in on the ground floor. And I was the first Canadian writer of any type to have a website. My website dates back to 1995, the early days of the World Wide Web. 
And uh, so I've always been out there. Funny thing is my publishers uh, at the time said, oh, we can't put your website in the about the authors or on the book. I said, no, no, let my readers come directly. No, 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 we have to mediate. You can't. It took years to convince <laughs> them that now every author is expected. The publisher almost demands that you have a social media following if they're going to take on a new author. You already have to have an audience. So I'm sfwriter.com. My name is Robert J. Sawyer. So you find me on Facebook as Robert J. Sawyer. At Twitter, I'm that name, Robert J. Sawyer, with no spaces or punctuation, just all run together, Robert J. Sawyer. And I have a Patreon account, which is where I'm most candid uh, with my readers and let them see draft manuscripts as, uh, you know, the stuff that I would never show to my editor because it's in terrible shape and I want my editor to maintain the illusion that I'm this miracle worker who ends in perfect manuscripts. I show the raw, uh, rough stuff on my Patreon account. Again, that's Robert J. Sawyer. Great. We'll have that up on our website as well so people can find you with one click. I appreciate it. Easy to do. So old sci-fi or new sci-fi, what's your favorite? So old science fiction, I'm a huge fan of Arthur C. Clarke, of course, best known for having co-written the screenplay to 2001 A Space Odyssey, the Stanley Kubrick film. But he's the guy who really grappled with big metaphysical issues in science fiction uh, in a way that made them seem rational and plausible. It had a huge impact on me. Uh, for modern science fiction, I got to say, I just love what they're doing with my beloved Star Trek franchise currently. I'm loving Discovery. Picard, his second season debut, was fabulous. And I just can't wait for Strange New Worlds, the Captain Pike aboard the Starship Enterprise series uh, that's uh, debuting in a couple of months. Well, there you have it. How How is COVID for you or how is... You know, when we talked about some of the anti-science, and, and, and it does bother you, but when, when you're in a situation like with COVID and, and things going on and there's a lot of stressful stuff in the world, uh, does that affect your writing? It does. Now, Oppenheimer Alternative is my novel that's currently out, but I've just finished a new one called The Downloaded, which was my COVID writing project, and it was about where we're about to be, metaphorically, in H.G. Wells kind of with disguises and masks, but we're about to go back to real-life interactivity. Right now, you and I actually are recording this on the audio, but on Zoom. And most of my interaction with other human beings, you know, for the last couple of years, like many people, has been over Zoom, has not been face-to-face, -face, physical contact. What's the world going to be like when we've gotten used to that limited window of um, access to people, when you have to go back and deal with them, in real life again, as flesh and blood beings 24-7, instead of people who conveniently pop up at your scheduled appointment time and then disappear into the background. So, yeah, it's had a huge impact. I don't think any writer, artist, uh, could not have been impacted by this incredible uh, pandemic. And the great wonder, we had our Manhattan Project of Virology over the last two years where we did develop incredibly rapidly vaccines to deal with something on a scale that we never dealt with before. So it's been a great time for scientific achievement, coupled with this enormous frustration of people just not following the science and making this crisis prolonged instead of being contained. Yeah, well, 
<laughs> I, 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 I can't agree more, but you know, um, what can I say? Every time I talk about that, I get hate mail. So, well, you know, and that's it. We get hate mail, and we're going to get it now, and I will get it. Come, come at me, guys. SFWriter.com. <laughs> Click on email Rob right there. The science is clear cut, and yet there are people who want to deny the science. And one of the things that's most fascinating, of course, is that a technology, social media, that I got to admit, no science fiction writer really predicted the kind of social media we have. We predicted the Internet, we predicted the World Wide Web, but not the information silos where you can get an echo chamber just hearing what you want to hear over and over, amplified until it's taken over your mind that social media is. Those people who want to hear that the, the science is flawed can hear it constantly, even though it's untrue that it's flawed whether it's about climate change, whether it's about coronavirus, whether it's about the earth being flat. The science is in and it is conclusive. On that note, we will <laughs> go, go for the day. Well, I appreciate everything and uh, your writing and interview. And uh, now your book you were talking about is The Oppenheimer Alternative. And, of course, our guest is the author, Robert J. Sawyer. Thank you for being here. My pleasure, Al. Thank you. Get the latest news and opinions from Eric Shapiro from the House of Mystery website in the Shapiro Report. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi there, I'm Kendra Adachi, and I host the Lazy Genius Podcast, a show that helps you be a genius about the things that matter and lazy about the things that don't. But here's the kicker. You get to decide what matters, not me. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to give you a new way to see. Episodes are around 20 minutes and are full of practical, helpful information, as well as a lot of permission slips to do what makes sense for you. New episodes drop every Monday and cover a broad range of topics from laundry and getting dinner on the table to finding work-life balance and organizing your inbox. So I invite you to give the Lazy Genius Podcast a listen. Together, let's stop doing it all for the sake of doing what matters. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.